You can go ahead and have a seat. Kids, kindergarten through third grade, can make your way to the, the back and head on downstairs. Any other kids in the toddler or infant range who might need to make their way downstairs can do that at this time also. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, like I just prayed. However, uh, we're actually going to take the last few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and unpack those just, just slightly uh, before we get into this text. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the table back behind uh, the wall there, and obviously there are some in front of you too in the pew, uh, but those are a little bit different translation than I'll be reading from this morning. Those are NIV, New International Version, I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to begin in verse 27. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 13. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all, pro- are, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess, possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, this is not an unfamiliar text to us. If you've been to a wedding in the last, since this was written, it was probably read. The ending of chapter 12 really serves, though, to give us some context as we walk into this love, this love chapter. It shows us exactly what Paul's focus is as he moves into this explanation of love and what it means. The focus on love has been apparent throughout our time in 1 Corinthians. And in fact, it's been the primary theme. The idea that that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as it comes to us, as they come to us in the local church. Paul wants the Corinthians to 
shift their focus off of self and self-interest because this causes division. He wants us to shift our focus off self and self-interest and onto the body of Christ or to the local church. So before we go on this morning, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, before we get there, I want to tell you what I think is the heart of 1 Corinthians 13 and also what is the heart of this entire book so far as we've seen it. What stands at the heart of 1 Corinthians and Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians? If we could boil it down to one statement, what is Paul saying to the church in Corinth? I think he's saying this. As the local church, above all, as the local church, above all, we are called to love one another because love is the truest expression of Christian maturity. As the local church, above all, we are called to love one another because love is the truest expression of Christian maturity. Love is the choicest fruit on the immovable oak rooted next to streams of living water. For, for the ancient Greeks and Romans, largely which the Corinthian culture was steeped in, they thought of maturity like grapes. Grapes, something that grows pretty readily in that region. Either you as an individual were aging well, like like grapes into a fine wine, or you were souring into vinegar. Much of the Corinthians' problem was that they were ignorant. They had some information. We see this, right? Even at the beginning of 12, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. He wanted to give them additional categories for the things that he was saying to them regarding spiritual gifts. So much of their problem was that they were ignorant. They had some information, but they applied it poorly and didn't seek a better understanding. How does this information actually work itself out in our day-to-day? And what Paul wants to say is all of this information you have, as the local church, above all, we are called to love one another because love is the truest expression of Christian maturity. Thomas Jefferson once said, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. The same is true of the Corinthian church. The same is true of the Christian. They expected to reap all of the benefits that came as a result of being in Christ. We're going to reap all of these benefits. There are wonderful things happening in their midst. Gifts of the Holy Spirit in particular when we get to chapter 12. But they were ignorant about the purpose of these benefits. The Holy Spirit came and gifted them in fantastic ways, and yet they remained ignorant as to how to rightly use them mainly to build up the body of Christ and to love one another. And so for us this morning, as we get into this text, the call is to consider your calling, to consider your calling, the call to love one another and show the world that we are disciples of Jesus. Friends, this is where we go from the shallow end of Christianity and just dangling our toes in the water into rich, abiding, fulfilling life in Christ Jesus. And this is how we make a gospel-rich impact in our community. 
This is how we will be a church full of disciples who make disciples. This is how we will see churches planted across North Dakota and the region, the country, and the globe. This is how our kids will grow up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is how we will live well, suffer well, and die well as believers. This is how we will put off grumbling and complaining. This is how we will live into the commands of Christ. This is how the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ if we have love for one another. And so this morning, we will follow the contours of this text as we read it, beginning in chapter 12, verse 27, and moving all the way through the end of chapter 13. And the contours of the text will lead us to ask three simple questions. What might be misidentified as Christian maturity? What is the shape of love? And why is love a more excellent way? So, what might be misidentified as Christian maturity? This is where the Corinthians' ignorance shines through for us. The misidentification of maturity. Again, we see the gifts of the Holy Spirit addressed in verses 27 through 31, just like we talked about last week as we processed the the majority of chapter 12. But in verses 27 through 31, he goes back and he restates a lot of the things that he said. Now, if you are the body of Christ and individual, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Unity, diversity, we are individuals who comprise a whole. And Paul goes right into this list. He, He talks about apostles, those who are sent and commissioned directly by Jesus. He talks about prophets, those who speak direct revelation from God himself. He talks about teachers, those who unpack the revelation of God. And he talks about miracles and healing, helping, administering, and tongues. Not everyone gets the same gift, Paul says. We talked about that last week. And he highlights that again in verse 29 and 30. But when when Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthians that varieties of gifts have a similar aim, again, all the way back into verse 7 of chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is their aim. That is why we have spiritual gifts. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has given you a gift to be exercised for the common good. This is what we covered last week in our time together, but before we move on, Paul tags this interesting little phrase here. Verse 31, that first half. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. It's important that we interpret this properly. There's a whole host of ways that we could take this, but the context demands here something very specific. Paul doesn't exactly give us what the higher gifts are here. He doesn't give us a list. Although we can see that throughout Scripture and throughout what Paul writes in the New Testament, pretty frequently he elevates teaching very highly, especially as we see it as he speaks to his protege, Timothy, and Titus in the pastoral epistles. We can see he also values prophecy. We go next week, we'll be in chapter 14 and in verse 1, Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul marks out prophecy as 
has more value to the building of the body than tongues. He even says that in chapter 14. Now, our ESV say higher gifts, right? 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And it would be important to see here that this is comparative, not superlative. What that means is that Paul is not calling any among the gifts of the Holy Spirit the highest or the best way to build up the body. That's important. None of these things on this list represent the highest or the best. He is in chapter 13 about to unpack a more excellent way as we see in that end of verse 31 in chapter 12. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And so it's comparative. Those are given gifts of the Holy Spirit, and yet to build up the body, there is a better way. So, what is then the meaning of verse 31? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. This should not be read as earnestly desire to have the higher gifts given to you, the individual, to exercise. That's not how that should be read. This should be read, earnestly desire that the higher gifts be present and exercised in the church. This is what the context demands. If it's through you, okay. If it's through someone else, okay. So, we see a point then of theology and a point of application. First, the list given to us needs to be read as a list that the Holy Spirit may give to a church for the common good. He may give these gifts for a common good. I think some people have made these gifts required. If these aren't present in people, then there isn't a real church. That's incorrect. Each person who is in Christ has a spiritual gift, but the composition of the local church is ultimately determined by God. A valid expression of a local church is not contingent on how the Holy Spirit has gifted its members, rather the recognition that he has gifted them and those gifts should be leveraged for the common good. Secondly, the point of application here from verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. As members of the local church, it should be that we desire to become a faithful example of unity. We should desire the shape and the form that God desires for us which is to fit together as the body and to display unity. So the Corinthians thought that it would be because they were receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a very profound and tangible way that meant they were mature. And logically, that kind of makes sense, right? We just kind of think of it like that. We're, we're mature, and therefore God is going to entrust us with more and more. Paul actually says it's very different, and it actually works in a very different way. God is giving the Corinthians spiritual gifts in order to be exercised for the common good of the building up the body into maturity. They're a tool to grow the church into maturity, and not necessarily the end or the marker of maturity. So the mistake, again, the Corinthians made was that they thought they were mature because of the gifts of the Spirit, when in reality they lacked the most essential fruit of maturity, which also proves to be the greatest means by which the church is built up, love. The Corinthians needed simple love 
for one another to be produced in them, and so do we. And so we ask the next question then, what is the shape of love? What does love actually look like? Our culture says it looks like something very specific or, or very, very different from even what Paul says here. But Paul starts out in chapter 13 by reinforcing the end of 12. He says, if you speak in tongues, but you don't have love, you're just making noise. He says, if you receive, understand, and communicate revelation from God and even have supernatural faith, but you don't have love, you're nothing. He says, if you sacrifice all that you have, but you don't have love, there's nothing waiting for you. Verses 1 through 3 are hard, and they may go nicely on some wall art, but these words are arrows aimed at the darkest corners of our hearts. It's meant to reveal what we believe to be demonstrations of maturity as believers in our own lives. That which you think you have to offer without love is meaningless, Paul says. And I think, unfortunately, this happens all of the time in the local church. We serve the church through ideas, organizational skills, practical skills, musical talents, hospitality, working with Buffalo City Church kids. We give generously. We know our spiritual gifts, and we really seek to exercise them to build up the body. But Paul says if we don't have love, we're just making noise. Division and backbiting and slander undermine the church and erode the disciple-making mission given to us by Jesus in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus tells us as disciples to go make disciples. And a verse that we've considered many, many times in our time in 1 Corinthians, John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. Not how flashy and polished Sunday morning is, not how well organized or how many resources, opportunities we can provide you and your family, not if we make our budget or always make the right choices organizationally. The world will know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our love for one another. Why? Because love is the choicest fruit on the immovable oak planted next to streams of living water. If we have not love, we're just adding noise to an already noisy world. But the only way we will have love is to plant ourselves firmly next to the one who displays perfect love. And so we get verses 4 through 7. And Paul showing us the shape of love. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not humble or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It rejoices not in wrongdoing, but in the truth. It bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. And when we look at this list, we see clearly where Paul is deriving this from. He's pulling it directly from the person of Jesus Christ. 
our perfect example of love. Jesus was patient and kind. He did not envy or boast. He was not, he was humble. He was not arrogant. He was not rude. He didn't insist on his own way, but on his heavenly fathers, and he was not irritable or resentful. He always rejoiced in the truth, never in wrongdoing. And he bore, believed, and hoped, endured all things. And so this is the more excellent way that Paul talks about in 1231. This is the more excellent way on full display in the life of Jesus himself. We need not seek another example, but we need to know this example intimately. We must together, friends, we must together drink deeply of the living water. Trees without water source wither and die before they reach maturity. The same is true of the Christian life. God himself, through his word, is our source. If you're a Christian and you don't plant yourself in God's word, you will never reach maturity in the way Paul describes it and Jesus exemplifies it. You will mistake other things for Christian maturity. Your theological prowess or the fact that you've read the newest, flashiest Christian book or or your performance on a Sunday morning or your financial stewardship or your creative parenting techniques. And here's what I'm saying this morning. You will mistake what you are capable of as maturity. You will see, I am capable of all of these things, and you will say, therefore, I am mature. That was the heart of the mistake that the Corinthians made. They looked at their capabilities, their God-given capabilities, and they said, we're mature in Christ. And Paul says, no, you're not, because you lack love. And love is the choicest fruit on the oak planted next to streams of living water. And so they missed in favor of what they thought they were capable of. They missed what they were called to, which happens to be the true mark of maturity, which is love for one another. So Paul takes this list in 4 through 7 and describes love for us. Love is patient. It doesn't just cut out toxic people, but it takes the long view with people. God bears with us patiently, mistake after mistake. Look again to the example of Jesus and the Apostle Peter. How many times did the Apostle Peter put his foot in his mouth right in front of Jesus? And how many times did Jesus gently correct him? Peter, even in a couple of instances, would seemingly stand in the way of the Father's purpose for Jesus. But Jesus corrects and restores Peter patiently, and he does the same for us. And love is kind. It is good-natured. Love focuses on the good and right, not bemoaning what is wrong in others, as we're so prone to do, but celebrating what God is producing in them. Love doesn't envy or boast. It doesn't desire the good as God can produce in others. It will resent them for it but celebrates God's work in the lives of others. And when God is working in our lives, it doesn't seek to improperly draw attention to the good being produced in us. Love is not arrogant or rude. It's modest. It's humble. It's not self-seeking or conceited. It doesn't wave accomplishments in the faces of, of others. 
Love is not irritable or resentful. It's not easily annoyed. It doesn't grit its teeth at the inconsequential. It doesn't grow bitter towards others who have more than, of what we want. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather in the truth. These are meant to be set up as opposites. Love doesn't revel in unrighteousness or injustice or moral evil. Love applies the truth of God to all situations and finds joy there. And then we have verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we need not go any farther than back to our perfect example, Jesus Christ. Bears, endures, believes, and hopes. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Bears all things. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, despite the fact that we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He bears all things. And then that leads us to the command that Paul tells the church in Galatia, chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love bears all things. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 2 Timothy 4.5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Love endures all things. Jesus bore the sin of the world. Now we are able to bear one another's burdens and we are able to bear with the shortcomings of others. A literal translation here would be covers up all things. Not that we would sweep wrongdoing under the rug or ignore justice, but that we do not highlight others' shortcomings, mistakes, or sins against us. Jesus endured hostility from sinners. Now, we are able to endure suffering ourselves. The word Paul uses that is translated endure here is a military word. It means to sustain the assault of an enemy. Where does love draw the threshold for assault? We are quick to retreat and retaliate when suffering at the hand of another comes our way. Love stands its ground, patiently enduring even the most intense of suffering at the hands of another. And love believes all things and hopes all things. This is hard because our society is hyper-cynical. You've probably already had several thoughts this morning about an interaction with someone that you've had in this very room and did not think that they were being genuine. In fact, you may have thought that they were being disingenuous. Are you callous and critical? What Paul writes here means that we wouldn't be suspicious 
of motives. We are conditioned in our culture to be suspicious of motives. Charles Hodge says it says that it re- readily credits what men say in their own defense. When people say something to you, do you internally roll your eyes and say, yeah, right? Or do you take them at, your, at their word? Believes and hopes all things. This is strictly in relation to other people and our relationships with them. Do we believe the best? Do we hope for the best? In interactions with fellow church members or coworkers or neighbors. This isn't a call to be naive. This is not a call to be naive, but a call to check suspicion, cynicism, and an overall spirit of distrust. Friends, this is the shape of love. This is the shape of love. Love that is shown to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then we must ask this question, this last question. Why is love the more excellent way? Why is love the more excellent way? Verse 8. Love never ends. The gifts of the Holy Spirit will pass away. Paul says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. These are partial. They're temporary. Love is perfect. It's whole. It's complete. And there's this interesting verse nestled here. Don't miss this. Verse 11, this is where the idea of maturity, where Paul drops the hammer on them and says, the gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't what demonstrate that you are mature, but your ability to love one another. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 1 Corinthians is a call to a church to give up childish ways, to move from milk to meat. When we are children, we think like children. We think maturity looks like something it does not. We think getting a driver's license or reaching the voting age or the Drinking age brings about maturity, but it would be foolish to credit maturity to societal markers. When we grow up into adults, we begin to realize that it's more what's being developed in us that makes us mature than these external societal markers. We see that maturity isn't a test or a skill that we have or that we take. Maturity is the advanced stages of development growing in breadth, growing in depth. And we become more mature. We realize the high school or college diploma didn't make us mature, but how we are being shaped and being formed. And for the Christian, that which is forming in us and that is working things out in us is God himself. Paul would write to the church in Philippi, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 12 in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 confirms this in verse 11. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our sight is now partial or immature. It's the same word. It's not complete. But when we enter eternity, we will see far more clearly then we shall know fully, completely, as we are fully known by God himself. Love is the more excellent way to build up the church because love does not end. Love is something that is not partial, that we can participate in now. Love is the preeminent expression of maturity in the life of the Christian. The Corinthians were acting like children thinking that by receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that made them mature or demonstrated or showed the world that they were in fact mature. But Paul says, no. The true mark of maturity is love for one another, which they still lacked. Paul says love never ends. Their spiritual gifts would. So as we conclude this morning, as we end our time, this is where I want to leave you. When we look at the shape of love in verses 4 through 7 and even 1 through 3 and into 8, we need to consider that this is not a conjuring of patience or kindness or humility or anything that Paul lists that makes you loving. We're not called to go home and work on this. The genuine producing of these things is through being planted in the love of God in Christ Jesus. The action item, again, is not to go home and look at this list and say, how can I check this off? How can I be more patient today? But to practice them in response to God's love shown to us in Christ Jesus as we read about it in God's word. This is why, friends, we need to have a firm understanding of the gospel as a church. We need to have a firm understanding of the gospel It's said that one generation will preach the gospel, the next generation will assume the gospel, and the last, third generation will lose the gospel. We must preach the gospel and never begin to assume the gospel. It is true that many Christians who have been Christians for years and years and years are unable to articulate the details of the gospel. We must preach the gospel and never begin to assume the gospel. How can Buffalo City Church be a faithful expression of the local church in Jamestown by keeping the gospel central? The good news that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life that we could not, and died the death that we deserve for the forgiveness of our sins. And then that calls us to turn from our sin and to trust that Jesus is the only way to get back to God. If you haven't believed the gospel, you need to this morning. You need to recognize that God sent his son, Jesus, to die for the forgiveness of sins. And that he is the only way back to God. Not through your performance, not through how well you're going to execute at work this week, not through how well you're going to parent your kids, not not based on how many times you show up to church and, and act in a particular way and modify your behavior to be kind and patient, but 
by genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, you still need the gospel because it is intended to produce in you love. It's intended to produce in you love, which is the choicest fruit of maturity. The gospel is God's ultimate expression of, God, of his love for us. And when we meditate on it, when we speak it and live with it central, when we preach it and proclaim it with our lives, Christian maturity is produced in us. And it shines most brightly when we love one another. Friends, you know it, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 is so familiar to us. Tim Tebow's eye black. It's on it. But God loved creatures which openly despised him, reviled him, denied him, cursed him, ignored him, that he sent his son to die for them. To die for you and me. And he didn't withdraw that offer based on our performance because of what Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. God is not stingy with his love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Exhausting people, exhausting circumstances, you can still show love because nothing can separate you from God's love. We're tempted to blame our lack of love on lack of sleep or difficulties at work at home. We snap at our spouses or our children or our parents or whomever we are in contact with. We blame it on illness. We name it. Some of the most incredible expressions of Christian love, though, are those who have lost everything and still display love. When you find yourself taxed, low energy, in difficulty, don't buy into the self-love that the world is selling. If you focus your energy on self-love, you will inevitably live a life of Christian immaturity and sour into vinegar. You will fail to do that for which you are created. You will inevitably grow impatient. You'll go resentful. You'll go arrogant and unkind. The things that Paul says love is not. Because people will disrupt your pursuit of self-love. Situations won't go the way you want them to. That's a guarantee. Rather seek to love others through knowing the love of God. Again, love is the choices fruit on the immovable oak rooted next to streams of living water. And as a local church, above all, we are called to love one another because love is the truest expression of Christian maturity. There is nothing more that we can do. The love of God for us in Christ is limitless. It never ends. Verse 8. That is the love that we want to reflect as we seek to grow and build up the body of Christ. Love, my friends, is the more excellent way. Let's pray.